take your Bibles uh, and turn to Mark chapter 12. Uh, Mark chapter 12, beginning with verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which makes a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all uh, those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word that you have given to us this morning. And God, there's been a lot of things that have gone on in our life even already yet this morning. And uh, so many things to distract us, so many things, God, to, to be thinking about. Uh, temptation to think about what we're going to do this afternoon or later this week and but we pray and ask Lord that you would uh, allow us to, to just focus on your word and we pray for your Holy Spirit to speak words of truth to us we pray in your name amen well this morning uh, I just have to say I, I am saddened as a pastor to know a number of covenant children who have grown up to either walk away from the faith completely or worse those who claim to live by grace those who would call themselves Christians but who live lives that are given over to habitual sin with everything in their lives really revolving around themselves rather than around the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, there could be a world of difference between the way that we see our lives in relation to Jesus Christ and how He sees us and views us in relation to Him. And, and one of the saddest possibilities imaginable is how far a person can go in professing to be a Christian and yet fall short of salvation. Uh, even our... Uh, yeah, this is just sad, but unfortunately it's true. Even Jesus speaks about this. Uh, let me read from Luke chapter 13, verse 24. Jesus says, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And we saw an example of that last week when Jesus was 
had the encounter with the scribe. Remember, he was speaking to him, and Jesus was uh, listening to his answers, and the man seemed to speak with great knowledge, and Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom of God, Mark 12, 34. And yet, as he's saying, you are not far, he is also saying, but you are not in the kingdom of God either. And so this is, a, a, um, this is a, something that Jesus says to a man who is very confident in his relationship with God. He had no doubt in his mind that he was a child of Abraham. Now we would say a child of God or, or someone who professes faith in Christ or, or something like that. But it, it's the same thing. It's somebody who had full assurance of their relationship with God. And yet Jesus says to them that you are not in the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus wants us to see that the spiritual condition of our lives can be different from what we think. And I know that sometimes that is hard for, for us to grasp. But I want us to consider that this morning as we look at Mark's gospel. As, as, as you look at this account with Jesus teaching in the temple, this actually sort of refers back to Mark chapter 11, verse 27. Jesus had been teaching in the temple and uh, all of a sudden, then this um, delegation from the Sanhedrin shows up, and they ask Jesus, "By what authority do you do these things?" And Jesus says, "Well, you tell me. You answer my question, then I'll answer your question." And of course, they couldn't. They or they refused to answer his question, so he didn't answer theirs. But so then they sent a number of people, Herodians, Pharisees, Sadducees, and even a scribe to Jesus to try to test him, to try to to trick him, and to to see what they could do. And and Jesus demonstrates the authority that he has and the answers that he gives to them. But also, as we'll see here in just a moment, also as the one who is the son of David, uh, the Lord of, of David as well. But also here, Jesus is describing the difference between those who have an almost religion and those who have a true faith in Jesus Christ. And, and I want us to look today at this text and the dangers of having a religion with no relationship or of being convinced of Christianity but not being converted. You see, there's a, there's a danger of being religious but not having a relationship with God. And that's a, that's a problem with the scribes that we see in our passage. But it may also be a problem with us today as well, with you, with, with me as well. And it, it, it is clear and a present danger everywhere that there is religion. Uh, where people love to speak of God and His Word. Where people love to sit around and talk about theology and pontificate uh, great truths, uh, heavenly truths. Uh, even in churches where people feel superior to other churches because they think that they're more spiritual. You know, in all of these, there's the danger of having a religion with no relationship with God. And it is a clear and a present danger because there are always scribes with us wherever we might be. Now, for us, oftentimes we think the scribes are out there, right? That it's other people. But unfortunately, there are times when some of us look in the mirror and we see the scribe. And so let us be very careful this morning as we listen to God's Word praying that the Holy Spirit would search our hearts and reveal to us this morning the true condition of our hearts before God. And so this morning I want us to look at three signs that show that a person 
maybe a scribe. There may be someone who is religious but has no relationship with God. So let's look at these this morning. The first I want us to see is that those who make a, a false profession know Scripture, but they don't know Christ. They know Scripture, but they don't know Christ. Verses 35 through 37. You know, if the Scriptures are not leading you to Christ, brothers and sisters, then they are leading you to hell. Because Christ is the whole point of Scripture. If you remember on the road to Emmaus, as Jesus is walking with these two disciples, you know, they are uh, mourning because Christ has been crucified. And here he is standing before them in his resurrected body. And, and he shares with them. He opens the scriptures, it tells us, in Luke 24, 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scripture the things concerning him. Because all scripture points to Christ. And, and if you are here this morning and you are someone that you are reading the Bible and it doesn't inform your mind of who Jesus is, if it does not stir your affections to love him more and more, if it does not mold and shape your will and therefore your actions and the way you live your life to be like Jesus, then you are misreading scripture in a big way. Because that's the intent of Scripture. Every verse, every passage, every chapter in the Bible confronts you with the reality of who Jesus Christ is. And not just adding to your head knowledge, but as I said, even stirring your affections as well. Well, as, as Mark gives this account this morning in verse 35, he, he really raises a question with, with the scribes. He's, he's saying to these religious leaders, look, you've asked me questions. Let me ask you a question now. And, and so he takes them back to the Old Testament, which the scribes are experts in the law. They, they pretty much felt like they could answer anything. And so Jesus takes them back to the Old Testament. And the Old Testament, really the focus for the Jew was on the Messiah and the coming Messiah. And he would come as the prophet, priest, and king. Now, I don't know... Uh, if all the Jews uh, understood that, but the Bible clearly teaches that, that, that the Messiah would be the one who would come and would speak to us from God. He would be the prophet. He, he was the one who would take us to God for the forgiveness of our sins as our priest. And he would rule us on behalf of God as our, as our king. And so uh, keep your hands there in Mark, but turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Second Samuel chapter seven. Excuse me. And let me read. Read from this this passage. The Jews were expecting that the Messiah would come and he would come from the line of David. It says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, 
from the time that I appointed judges over the people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. I will raise up your offspring. Now that word offspring can be translated seed. And it's actually interestingly in the singular. Okay, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, of course... This was fulfilled to some degree in the life of David's son Solomon, was it not? But ultimately, we see that this was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Your seed, or your offspring, your seed, it says in verse 12, will rule over God's kingdom. They'll establish his kingdom. Okay, now you might look at verse 14 and say, now wait a minute, how does this apply to Christ? He commits iniquity because we know that Jesus did not commit iniquity, but we did. And Christ represents us uh, with, uh, in all of our sin. And as a result, as we read at the end of verse 14, and he was disciplined with the rod of men and the stripes of the sons of men. We know that Christ suffered uh, terribly um, before and on the cross for our sins. And then we read in verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And so we, we see here that this promise that was given to David also applies to Christ as, as the Messiah. Turn, if you would, then to Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37, 24. Now this is written during the exile in about the 500s. And, uh, and Ezekiel speaks of, of another David. Uh, Ezekiel 37, 24. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And will set my sanctuary in the midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. You see, the, the, the great David is coming, and he will bless his people once again. And the, the Jews expected this. They were waiting with anticipation. The problem is, this king that, that Ezekiel talks about is spoken of as David, and yet he's talked about as much greater than David. Look at verses 25 
to 27. It, it, it speaks of an everlasting covenant. It speaks of setting my sanctuary in, in their midst forever, of my dwelling place being with them. This was not just an ordinary king, but this was a kingship in which God dwelt with his people. Well, in the Psalms, we, we also see this coming Messiah, the son of David that would come. And we could look at a, a, a number of different Psalms. Psalm 2, we could look at Psalm 45, Psalm 89. A lot of these refer to, to Christ coming as the Messiah. But there's probably none that's it's better well known and descriptive of this than Psalm 110. So turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 110. It's a psalm of David, and, and Mark tells us, back in Mark's Gospel, that David wrote this psalm by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So, so not only is David speaking here, uh, but the Holy Spirit is speaking through David as well, okay? So look at Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord, that is the name Yahweh, says to my Lord, my Adonai, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn it will not change his mind. Well, let me just stop there just a second. Now, the Jews understood that this was speaking about the Messiah, but the problem is, is that it's speaking of one who is greater than David, and, uh, but the, the Messiah is David's son. And we have to understand from a biblical perspective, those who came after, or the descendants, were always less than those that had come before. I mean, you think about the Jews and their understanding of Father Abraham. They considered him greater, or Moses, you know, those that had come before them, they had great esteem for. So then how can the Messiah be David's son and yet be his Lord, his Adonai? Well, we read in verse 4 that the Messiah is not only the king, but he's also a priest. And, and never had uh, anyone held both the kingship and the priest. There were those who tried. I think about Saul, who was king over Israel. And yet when, when Samuel was late in coming, he decided that he was worthy to, to offer the sacrifices to God. But because of that, he lost his kingdom. And so that wasn't the case. But the Messiah is the only one that's great enough to be both king and priest and also prophet as well. So the question comes is, how can the Messiah be David's son and yet David's Lord? And as, as, as Jesus is asking these questions to these uh, scribes, they have no answer for him. The people marvel. The people are amazed and, and, and uh, impressed by this question that Jesus asked. Back, If you turn back to, to Mark chapter 12, it says, And the great throng heard him gladly. Because Jesus was showing them that this Messiah had to be someone greater than uh, just a mere man. Well, these men, these scribes, were the most studied of all the men of the day, and yet, even as much study as they had given to God's Word, they did not recognize that Jesus is the one who is the Messiah. Their time in God's Word did not lead them to Jesus. They didn't understand the basic message of the Old Testament coming 
uh, Messiah that was coming. And as we come this morning, we need to be careful because this can be true of us as well. Most, if not all of us, have been raised in the church. And we know the answer. And if we don't know the answer, we know it has something to do with Jesus dying on the cross, right? That's sort of uh, the way that we sometimes function. But I think we need to ask ourselves very carefully this morning, uh, do we know this in our heads, but we don't know it in our hearts? Does your Bible reading lead you to treasure and to value Christ? Does your time in God's Word, whether it's here in worship, whether it's in Sunday school, whether it's in Bible study, whether it's in your personal worship time or your family worship time, does it lead you to know Christ, to be grateful to Christ? Does your Bible reading lead you to worship Christ and to exalt His name? Does it cause you to say that He loved me and gave Himself up for me and I am overwhelmed with such love? Or are they merely words that you know somewhere up here that's rattling around in your head? Or do they grip your soul and transform your life? Because if they don't, you might just be a scribe. When your Bible reading leads you to rules and not to relationship with Christ, then you're, as one person said, you're like a broken pencil. You just missed the point of it all, right? Um, forgive the pun. Because it's a serious matter if we don't know Him. But they knew Scripture, but they did not know Christ. The second thing I want us to see is those who make a false profession of faith love appearance, but not reality. They love appearance, but not reality. Look at verses 38 through 40. And in His teaching, He said, Beware the scribes, who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogues and the place of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they receive the greater condemnation. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus says, beware um, of the scribes. They are a danger not only to themselves, but to others as well. And I think, just think about that and contrast that with what Paul writes to Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, Paul writes to this young pastor and he says, Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. You see the contrast? You know, by paying careful attention to God's Word and doing it, uh, Timothy will save both, but the, the um, scribes would put both in danger. It reminds me of a quote by uh, J.C. Ryle. He's an Anglican bishop, probably not like any other Anglican bishop you might meet today, but uh, this is what he said. He said, it's bad enough to be led away captive by open sin and, and to serve various lusts and pleasures. That's a terrible thing to have happen in your life. But he goes, but it is even worse to pretend to have a religion while in reality we serve the world. Let us be aware, let us beware of falling into this abominable sin. Whatever we do in religion, let us never wear a cloak. Let us be real, honest, 
thorough and sincere in our Christianity. We cannot deceive an all-seeing God. He goes on to say, he said, we may take in poor, short-sighted man by a little talk and profession and a few conventional phrases and uh, of our devotedness, but God is not mocked. He is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He, his all-seeing eye pierces through the paint and the varnish and the tinsel which cover the unsound heart. The day of judgment will soon be here. As Job 20 verse 5 says, the joy of the hypocrite is for a moment. His end will be shame and everlasting contempt. Did you hear what he said? But it is even worse to pretend to have religion or to be, to call yourself a Christian, while in reality, what you're really doing with your life is serving the world. You're serving yourself. Let us beware of falling into this abominable sin. Whatever we do in religion, let us never wear a cloak. Let us be real, honest, thorough, sincere. We would say in today's language, need to be authentic. You need to be genuine in your faith because we can't deceive God. He's the all-seeing one. You see, Jesus sees right through these scribes and the way that they live their lives. His all-seeing eye pierces through the paint and varnish and tinsel which cover the unsound heart. Jesus saw the scribes for who they really were, all about outward appearance. I mean, look at the text. Whenever the scribes walked through the marketplace, everyone would stand up. Uh, they wore long robes. Oops. Anyway, they wore long robes so that they could stand out as they walked through the marketplace. And, and they were greeted by people which would call them rabbi or they might call them my great one or master or father, some other term of respect. And, and whenever the wealthy would have a feast, they didn't invite movie stars or athletes or anyone like that to come to their feast. They would invite the scribes. And they would have the scribes sit on their left or on their right just to show that they're somebody because the scribes were sort of seen as... Uh, having great honors. As a matter of fact, they were honored more than one's father and one's mother. And when they came to the synagogue, they sat in the ultimate place of seat of honor, facing the congregation, and they would hold the Torah so everyone would see how pious they were. They loved being greeted and looked to as the wise, yep, the wise ones. Yet Jesus says they devour widows' houses and pray long prayers appearing to be so holy. Now, as far as what that means, devouring widows' houses, it's a, it's a little unclear as to what exactly Mark meant by that particular phrase. But there are accounts I was reading this week. Uh, sometimes uh, the scribes would look after the will of a widow uh, to help her out. But yet, in reality, they would also take a large chunk of that uh, stuff that they got from their will of course for their expense fund you know or there would be times when a widow was in debt and they couldn't pay their debt and so the scribe would come in and would pay their debt but then take their house as collateral and oftentimes the widows couldn't pay so you can imagine what happened with that house or I even read one account where the scribes would convince the widow to make a donation to the synagogue 
But the money mysteriously never made it to the synagogue after they gave it to the scribe. But the point that Jesus is making here is very clear, that these men cared only for the externals of life. It was all about image. It was all about what people thought of them. It was about the reputation. The reality of, of uh, Christian life was not there. But worse, the reality that was there was wretched in the eyes of God. Now, that can be me and that can be you. It, it's so easy for us to stand here and to cast judgment upon these scribes, but it's appalling how well one can preach and yet be far away from God. It's appalling how well one can look on Sunday morning and yet whose heart is far from God. The appearance of our religion, our Christianity, and the reality of our Christian life can be so different, and yet that difference can be hidden from other people, or we think it can. And what's so sad about this is, is that the false professor is oftentimes so thoroughly deceived that they even deceive themselves, and they cannot see their own hypocrisy and their deceitfulness and duplicity. But God sees. God sees not as man sees himself or as others see him. God sees our hearts. For those who worry more about appearance than truly living a life of repentance and obedience before God, they will receive, as it says in verse 40, the greater condemnation. That's a scary place to be, brothers and sisters. To think that your soul is right before God and the life that you're living is pious and holy only to receive God's condemnation. You see, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And I think it's good for us this morning to stop and to pause and to ask ourselves, where are you this morning? Where am I this morning? Are you like those in the church at Crete that Paul wrote to Titus about when he said this in, in Titus chapter 1, verse 16? Titus 1.16, he said, They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Or verse 15, he says, To the pure, all things are pure. You know, sanctification affects every area of our lives. God changes us from the inside out. And he changes us from the top to the bottom. Never completely. But he does change us pervasively. He permeates every nook and cranny of our lives. This is part of the battle we're having as a denomination. Does God change us completely or not? Or do we struggle? Or is there somehow some way that there are certain sins that we're just always going to have to live with forever? But the reality is God does. And while he doesn't change us completely here upon this earth, he does address every part of our lives. But Paul goes on to say, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Nothing is pure. Both their conscience and mind is defiled. You see, the, the false professor thinks he sees clearly, but he doesn't. 
the person who does not really have faith in the Lord thinks that they can see their heart as it is. And they profess to know God, but by their deeds themselves, they actually deny that they know God. With God, either the gospel affects everything or it affects nothing. God's power to save is mighty, brothers and sisters. And I think sometimes we just think that that believing in the Lord Jesus Christ is just something I just, I just pray a prayer and, and then I'm okay and I can just live my life the way I want. Our God is mighty and He changes our lives and He sanctifies us. And this is a call to you and me to integrity. You, you cannot allow yourself to compromise in one area of your life. Without that, without that compromise affecting every other area of your life. You know, it's, it's almost like pouring a quart of motor oil on a roll of paper towels and thinking that after you poured that entire quart on that roll of paper towels, that that motor oil only affects the outside layers of that paper towel. That's not the case. That motor oil would soak into the very core of that paper tube in the middle, will it not? and even affect that. And it's the same way with our sins. And so we cannot allow pornography in our lives or drunkenness or, or being someone who is slanderous with our tongues or lazy in our actions or, or lying and, and, and having dishonesty or deceitfulness in our lives. You, you can't bend the truth without it affecting every area of your life. You can't allow money to be your God or possessions to be your God or leisure or entertainment or even hobbies to be your God. You cannot allow major compromise in your life in one area and not expect it to affect every other area of your life. To the pure, all things are pure. The gospel affects every part of our lives. Because God is mighty to save us. But to those who are defiled, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. And, and Mark says here that the scribes have that appearance of religion, but not reality. Because they love the appearance, but not the reality. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you want to have the reality of religion, if you want to have the reality of faith in Jesus Christ, you have to be real with God. You have to be with God regularly. Now, I, I'm not just saying you need to have your quiet time, okay? Because we can actually make an idol out of that, of having our quiet time. And we can feel really good about ourselves, and we can feel like, you know, well, if I have my quiet time this morning, then God loves me a little bit more today. But if I didn't have my quiet time, then God, God loves me a little bit less today and He won't bless me quite as much. And so if I have a little bit more of a difficult day, I know it's because, you know, I didn't have my quiet time. You know, we, we can think that kind of way. The problem with that kind of thinking is it's not biblical at all. You know, you don't, you don't see that in Scripture. But it is taught in Scripture that we can easily forget God. And, and forgetting God is, is a dangerous business if you're, if you're going to be real with Him. It is when you are not real with God that you have a tendency to focus 
on what others think about you, about appearance and reputation and so on and so forth. You know, I think Psalm 139, if you want to turn there, you're welcome to. I know it's a very familiar uh, passage of Scripture, and we oftentimes use it to, you know, as we have conversations about the topic of abortion or things like that, to show that God knew us even before we were born, you know, that we were a person, and, and that's true. But this passage is also an example of what it means to be real with God, the God who, who searches us and knows us. He, he understands our thoughts from afar. He scrutinizes our paths, our lives, our ways. He knows exactly what's going on. And, and this is a, a psalm that David wrote. And it's not just a truth that David had learned in Sunday school when he was little. It, it's not that. No, God is an ever-present reality in David's life. And that's what he's expressing here. David has seen God in all of these ways in his life. He can attest to these things. And he's seen the reality of these things. This describes the relationship that David has with God. It is a life of continual daily access to God and intentionally giving God access to us. Now, we know that God knows everything about us. So you might say, what do you mean, Pastor Rick, giving God access to God? It's sort of, in a, in a sense, sort of laying our souls bare before God, saying, Lord, this is who I am. It's, it's watching Him search us and know us and revealing to us the motives and the attitudes of our hearts. We are surrounded by God's all-seeing eye who penetrates us to the core of our being. So we read God's word asking him to, to search me and expose my pride and my self-sufficiency and my fear of others. Uh, excuse me. And, and my fear of others seeing my weakness. You know, those kind of sins. You know, kids, let me just ask you this morning. You've grown up in church. Does this describe your relationship with God? That you are just, that, that when you read his word, you are just laid bare before him. You say, God, I'm yours. And, and, and it's, it's, it's really like uh, opening all the rooms of the home of our lives to him, inviting him into each room, having no secret room where we have hidden sins. It's no locked doors but it's being fully exposed before Him and, and watching Him examine our soul and being laid before Him with no excuses for our sin, only having a heart of repentance. It's like David says uh, at the end of Psalm 139, verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And as we are real with God, we will have the freedom to be real with other people. But if we don't have that relationship with God where, where we know Him intimately and He knows us, then we're always going to be about trying to keep an image or a persona up 
and that takes a lot of uh, effort to do that. And you need to have people in your life letting them know where you are spiritually. For some, that might be your spouse. For others, it may be a friend or, or maybe someone here in the church. And so it's, I think it's good for us to ask, what kind of accountability do you have in your life? Do you, let, do you keep others at arm's length or, or do you let them in? And, and it's a wonderful thing to, to have that relationship with someone where you are loved even though they know the worst about you and they love you. And this is what God does in one's life who knows him and he walks with him. God sets us free from all the work it takes to keep up that facade of appearance. Because when we know Christ and we know him and know his love for us and that he accepts us, you know, then there's just a freedom there to say, I don't have to try to be somebody. He already loves me. But the beautiful thing is, that, is he loves us so much, he is not willing to leave us where we are. And I see so many people who profess faith in Jesus Christ who says, God loves me. And they're living their life of sin. And they're living their life of self-absorption. And they, they're, they're not understanding that God loves them too much to leave them in that. That's not describing a relationship with God. A relationship with God is one where He exposes the sin of our hearts and He gives us the strength to resist and to put to death that sin by His Word and through prayer and the sacraments, through His Holy Spirit that's at work in our lives, even as painful as that can be sometimes. You see, and then God places us in His church that we might have others to walk alongside us as well. But are we taking advantage of that? Even, even in the church. I think we have a great group of people here. I'm so thankful for our church. But for you individually, are you letting the people in this church in your life? Are you structuring your life in such a way that you are around other believers? Not just around them, you know, but in a capacity where they have access to your heart where they have access to the things that you're going through, to the inner part of who you are? Are you, are you with other believers in the Word and in prayer that really reveals who you are? But if you refuse to be real with God and you shut others out of your life, it's so easy to hide the spiritual deficiency that's in your life with just a, a thin coat of religiosity and appearance. Uh, I Looking at the clock, I can see I, I'm not going to have time to cover the third point, so we're going to do that next week. I'm sorry about that. But, but let me just leave us with this. Where are you this morning? Are you focused on appearance and reputation and all the things external in your life? Do you have religion without a relationship with God? Does your Bible reading lead you to Christ, to know Him and love Him and worship Him? Are you real with God? Do you see that God is real with you, like Psalm 139? Is your relationship with God growing and vital 
enjoying more and more intimacy with him. If so, praise be to God. And may he continue to cause him to cause you to love him more. But if you're not, I encourage you to turn to him. Jesus warns us about the scribes, the life of one who makes a, a false profession. And let us, like Jesus, who says to the scribe, you're not far from the kingdom. You're not in it, but you're not far. May we turn to him and ask for his mercy for our soul. Let's pray. Lord, your words have been spoken. We just pray now for the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts, Lord, to lead us to you. Lord, I especially want to pray for the person that may be within the sound of my voice who is professing to be a believer, but maybe who is far from salvation. Oh God, let them not rest tonight. Let them not rest ever until they come to you, Lord, broken, seeking your mercy. We pray in your name. Amen.